glad, glad we can uh, glad we can meet. Um, so I'm just going to be talking about sexual identity, gender identity, and then sort of in faith-based settings. Um, I direct the Sexual and Gender Identity Institute at Wheaton College, and these are some ways that you can keep in touch with us if um, if you uh, would like to or need additional resources. Um, and here's the basic thing I'm going to try to cover. I want to go over a few foundational issues, talk about different uh, lenses through which people see this topic, uh, topics we're going to talk about, talk a little bit about levels of engagement just to help you kind of locate yourself on different ways that you interact around this topic. And then um, I want to talk about macro level and micro level um, considerations um, that have to do more with like policy versus interacting with students. And uh, I hope to do that in enough time to leave us uh, a good amount of time for some Q&A. So, um, so if you can hold questions until the end, I think that'll be really helpful. Also, I can make a PDF of this PowerPoint available to you through Kevin. Um, so you don't have to worry about like taking all this down. And they always say, don't put a lot of words on your PowerPoint, but these are just definitions. So you'll, we'll get the PDF to you. And I'm not gonna read through each of these, but like just understanding when we talk about sexual identity, we're talking about same-sex sexuality or same and other sex sexuality, how people like label themselves based on their sexual uh, attractions or orientation. So gay, straight for that matter, bi, bi-curious, queer, are all sexual identity conversations and labels. Um, whereas gender identity is your experience of yourself as a boy or a girl, a man or a woman, or a different gender identity than that. So that's more the transgender conversation. They're two different conversations and it's kind of helpful to kind of separate those out a little bit. So I gave you a number of terms more around that distinction and around sexual identity here. On this slide, more gender identity, like being transgender, adopting typically a cross-gender identity, but it is an umbrella term for a lot of ways people experience, express, or live out a gender identity that's different than one that corresponds with their biological markers. And then um, gender non-binary is another umbrella term for a lot of ways people experience a gender identity. They would probably say it's like in between the binary or outside the binary of boy, girl, man, woman. Um, and you'll often hear people say like gender minority, gender diverse to capture this community, just as you might say sexual minority for the other group of people that um, we're discussing. And so um, in Christian circles, this designation will be increasingly popular among your students, which is to differentiate perspectives based on these different letters. So this was begun by a ministry called Bridges Across. It was kind of a dialogue ministry that closed since then. But they use like letters to designate positions around moral issues rather than, you know how when people frame like the abortion discussion, they'll frame it in a way that you know their positions or are you pro-choice or are you pro-life? Like the framing tells you sort of the position. So they wanted to avoid that by saying like pro-gay, anti-gay, and they use these letters. So side A, gay Christians would hold that same gender sexual relationships may be morally permissible, like in the context of marriage or something like that. Side B would believe that same gender sexual relationships are morally impermissible. And that would be more of a traditional Christian sexual ethic. 
but a group of people who would say that they're gay Christians, but they're side B or they're celibate gay Christians or something like that. Side C would say that they're undecided. Um, they're not sure whether the relationships are morally permissible. Side X would believe that same gender attraction itself is a moral concern. And so this is a group of people who would be actively trying to change their attractions. So X here stands for like the X gay movement. And then side Y believes that a person might not really expect to change their orientation, but they do have similar concerns about their own attractions. And so they refrain from using identity labels like gay, uh, Christian. They would maybe say things more like, I have an identity in Christ. So someone like a Christopher Yuan, if you're familiar with him, his testimony probably would land here. Someone like a Wesley Hill would say, I'm a celibate gay Christian, would land in the side B. So we can kind of go through examples like that. But this is kind of a more common younger generation terminology um, that just might be helpful to you to, to be aware of. A um, couple of these, these slides actually are unfortunately quick because they have to do with theories of causation. So we really don't know what causes a person to have different sexual orientations. We actually really don't know what causes heterosexual orientation, let alone homosexual orientation or bisexual orientation. But ordinarily, or normally, this is like um, framed as a nature versus nurture debate, like it's biology versus you know upbringing. And that really oversimplifies things and it kind of politicized things quite a bit. Um, even the last like large genome-wide study that was like half a million people, participants, um, really showed like five markers, but like they weren't, they only accounted for a pretty small percentage. Uh, much of it was non-biological. Uh, and so um, we just really don't have good data on like what are the pathways. I think most people in this space believe it's more from nature than nurture. Um, I, I think something as complex as sexuality would probably be um, shaped by both nature and nurture, probably to differing degrees for different people. I think there's differences between male and female experiences. There's differences among males, differences among females. Um, but I don't think it's the relationship like between genotype and phenotype like you'd have with eye color or hair color. It's probably more like it provides a push in this direction, but the push wouldn't be determinative. You'd have to have other things in place and we're not really sure what those other things in place would be. So I'm sort of an agnostic when it comes to causation. I just don't think we can say. So I'd rather kind of hold this with more humility. Um, and then uh, gender identity, we also really don't know what causes people to experience um, a diverse gender identity where their gender identity is discordant with their biological markers like chromosomes, gonads, genitalia. I would say the most popular theory in this space is probably tied to brain sex theory. And this has to do with fetal development that the fetus, if it's exposed to testosterone early, will uh, the genitalia will differentiate in a male direction. And if there's ongoing exposure to testosterone, the brain would map in a male direction. And so the thought is, are there instances where it just doesn't map in that way? And I think a lot of people are drawn to that. Um, that's kind of related to a, a concept of maybe there's like an intersex condition of the brain so intersex experience is where there's like a medical condition that the person is born with like shared reproductive tissue of 
male and female. So something like um, Klinefelter's or Turner syndrome. And so you have um, you you have this theory: is possible that the that the brain of a transgender person is phenotypically distinct, and that would be predicated on distinct kind of male brains and female brains, and then kind of pairing them into this distinct transgender brain. So I'm not particularly invested in that theory. I'm not against that theory as a Christian. I just, I just don't think we have sufficient research to support it. So again, I hold this kind of loosely, which I know is frustrating to a number of people who would like to know exactly why, how it is people experience this, how people get here. Um, but I'd rather be just honest with you. We just don't know. Um, now, this is from a U.S. sample, so I don't have this for where you are, for Canada, but um, this was a recent Gallup poll. We were just seeing a rise in the number of LGBTQ Americans, and you saw, the main thing I wanted to point out is that we were seeing this by generation, pretty significant increase. So I'd be surprised if that wasn't the case um, for your country, but I, I don't have that in front of me, but I just wanted to point out we're seeing a remarkable increase in younger aged people saying that they have a different gender identity or a different sexual identity than um, straight or cisgender persons. Um, so we don't know exactly why there's that rise. I think a lot of people would say there seems to be social influences that would lead to that, a social permissiveness that would lead to that. And I think that's certainly on the table. Others would say, well, this is, I mean, it's kind of related. They would say, well, this is greater social acceptance. So you have people being able to speak their truth in ways that they wouldn't have in previous generations. And I think that is true for us percentage of people. But if that's all that's going on, I think that that might be a little naive to think that's everything that's going on. There may be some other things in play. Okay. I wanted to share three explanatory frameworks. These function as lenses through which people see this topic. And so um, I think I shared a bit about this in the readings that you did, but just briefly, um, what I call lens, I'll call lens one, but I called it the integrity lens probably in the reading that you did. But this is a group of folks who would say, um, there's an integrity to male female differences that God intended at creation. And so that complementary relationship between male and female at creation, Genesis one, Genesis two, lays the foundation and the parameters for what's morally permissible sexual behavior. And so um, sexual behavior that resides outside of that premarital, extramarital, or same gender would be morally impermissible. And then um, adopting a cross-gender or other gender identity would go against the integrity of those male-female differences that God intended at creation. So this is more of a concern to be corrected. So tend to think of it more in moral categories of right and wrong, of sin. And um, not everybody here would say that this is like willful disobedience, but a number of folks would say that. And if people do say that, they're probably coming out of this explanatory framework. A second lens I described, I said the disability lens. Um, some people haven't liked that name, but so I'm going to call it lens two but um, it identifies different sexual orientations or gender identities as um, uncommon but predictable variations that occur in nature. So you don't even have to be a Christian to see it this way. These are just variations. They're non-moral realities you respond to with compassion. 
But if you are a Christian and you're drawn to this lens, you might say, well, why are those variations occurring in nature? And the Christian might say it's because of the fall. So this group believes in Genesis 1 and 2, but they bring to the foreground the story of the fall and creation and say, well, the fall touches so many aspects of created order, including our sexuality and gender. And, you know, to be fair, the integrity folks also believe in the fall, but they emphasize creation. And so ministry for them is often to restore creational intent. Ministry for lens two is typically, how do I help you deepen in your faith with an enduring or besetting reality like same-sex sexuality or discordant gender identity? I don't expect that to change. I don't minister to you to make that different, but I can sort of minister to you to grow in the depth and sincerity of your faith with this experience. And then the third lens is the, oh, let me, let me share a quick quote that captures a little bit of the spirit of this. In the world of hearing loss, you have those who are deaf and those who are deaf. These two groups are well distinguished and identified. So anyone who uses capital D deaf knows that she's referring to something more than small d deaf. People who are deaf with a capital D comprise a culture. They do not see themselves as having a disability. They see themselves as a people group with their own language and culture. On the other hand, those who are deaf with a lowercase d do not see their hearing loss as an identity. Instead, they see it as a disability or a medical condition. The group is more likely to be oral. That is, they often undergo intensive training to lip read, and they use their voice to communicate instead of using sign language. Some might also seek a cochlear implant. So when they say, I am deaf, they are not saying, I am deaf with a capital D. And at times, there's contention between the groups because of a conflict in how each group understands its experience of hearing loss. For example, those who are deaf with a capital D see cochlear implants as threatening and extreme offense. They don't believe anything needs to be fixed. They celebrate their identity as deaf. So this was from a friend of mine, uh, Karen, who's gay and who is actually deaf. And she was just taking me out of the gay debate into the deaf debate to help me understand that like the disability lens could function for some gay people as um, like something not functioning the way it was originally intended. Like Wesley Hill, who's a celibate gay Christian, will talk about himself as a thorn pricked Christian, uh, citing the apostle Paul and the idea of a thorn in his flesh. Like this isn't the way it was meant to be, but I'm a thorn pricked Christian and God uses this and has grace that's sufficient for me with this experience. But obviously, Karen's also saying that there's others, and maybe perhaps vast majority within the gay community, who would see this not as uh, a concern to be corrected or something to be empathized with, but it would be a culture to be celebrated. And so that's the last lens. This is the lens where my field psychology is, is and culture is rapidly moved towards. It highlights sexual and gender identity as reflecting an identity and a culture to be celebrated as an expression of diversity. And I think what's most compelling to middle school and high school kids is that it really tries to answer questions about identity and questions about community in ways that are very compelling. This is who you are, and this is the community of which you're a part. So the LGBTQ community is often referred to as the family. And many people that we interview, at least when they get to college, they do not say the same thing of like their faith community growing up. They don't usually talk about their local church as their family 
and they might gravitate towards seeing the LGBTQ community or the mainstream of that community as more of a family. And that's kind of the language that's used there. So I would encourage you to think about which lens you gravitate towards and why. I think the lenses help um, develop cognitive complexity, which includes perspective taking, seeing through the eyes of the other, seeing through the eyes of other staff at your school, the students at your school. But I would imagine these lenses coexist throughout your school. And then it's a question of, you know, most people want to tell people what their lens is or shout. Their, I mean, much of the culture wars that we see are between the integrity lens and the disability or the diversity lens, kind of lobbying legislation at each other and um, kind of antagonizing one another. But I think these lenses coexist in churches and families. That's where I see them a lot as a psychologist. Um, I don't know if anyone's seen the, uh, uh, there's a reality show, I Am Jazz, but Jazz Jennings in the US is one of the youngest documented cases of a, of a person who's a uh, natal male who's raised as a girl since probably four or five. But one time when she was about 11, Barbara Walters interviewed her and her siblings and said to the young older sibling, daughter, uh, sister and twin brothers, how do you explain jazz to your friends? And the older sister said, well, I tell my friends it's a disorder. It's not something that she chose. And Barbara Walters has been doing this a few times. And she turned to Jazz and said, what's it like for you to hear your sister talk about you that way? And Jazz says, I don't like that word disorder because to be transgender is to be special or unique because that's who I am. And so the older sister was obviously using the disability lens to talk to her peers. She says to them, it's a disorder. She didn't choose this, almost as though she's anticipating that her peers would come at this from an integrity lens of like willful disobedience or something that she's doing that's wrong that she should be corrected. And she gets ahead of that and says, it's a disorder, she didn't choose this. Well, Jazz hears that and says, it's almost like she's processing, I can't imagine a future where I could flourish if I thought about myself in those terms. So she's clearly drawing on the diversity lens. I think of being transgender as being special or unique because that's who I am. And so when I think, and, and in my writing, I actually recommend that Christians draw on the best of each of these lenses. That for me, I think, I don't think we'd even have consensus on how to integrate the best of these lenses in a room this size. But for me, I think a biblically faithful starting point is the integrity lens. But I think the ministry posture is lacking there, the lack of compassion, empathy. So I like that from the disability lens. Um, but then I always think of jazz when I think of what's the strength of the diversity lens, although I might not agree with them theologically, kind of where they land. I have to acknowledge that their answers to questions of identity and community are the most compelling to the average high school or middle schooler. And so the church really has to address in ministry, how do we respond to identity and community in a way that's compelling? Because our answers right now have not been compelling. Let me say something about levels of engagement uh, for ministry. And this is distinguishing between political identity, public identity, and private identity. So political identity is really activism. When you engage with activists, uh, most people you know are not activists. Uh, very few of us are called to minister to people who identify as activists. Um, but when you do this, you do this where you affirm their personhood, you try to see through their eyes, their concerns, whenever possible, you identify superordinate goals that you might be able to share. 
uh, like reducing homelessness, things like that, where we would stand arm in arm, but we disagree on some other pieces. And you try to relate with what Richard Mao uh, called convicted civility. He would say we have far too many Christians who are strong on convictions, but you wouldn't want them to represent you to the broader culture because they're just not kind people. But you have also Christians who are so strong on civility, you have no idea what they believe in. So you need Christians with convicted civility. Um, and I would add, you know, maybe seasoned with compassion, but, but anyway, and a second ministry is really public identity. And this is your neighbor. This is your coworker. These are your students, extended family, you know, and you relate to people. This is most people, most of us know. And these are people who, you know, you respond to with hospitality. Like I tend to use people's name and pronouns as an act of hospitality. I try to be genuine, warm, focused on the relationship as I would anybody else whose individual or group characteristics are those that I'm not that familiar with or that I don't experience. And Christians already have this skill set. We do this with people who are agnostic, who are atheists, who come from different cultural backgrounds than us. Like we have this skill set. So you're just applying that to a group of people for whom their individual characteristics through sexual identity or gender identity are different than your own. And then the last group is I call private identity. These are people who are actually navigating these questions actively. And there's a conflict between their religious identity, for example, as a Christian and their sexual or gender identity. And so they might be seeking ministry or counseling. And so that's a little bit different. That's not most people. But here you want to create space for emotional and spiritual safety to take their sexuality and their gender seriously and to take their faith seriously. Um, most people that I've surveyed or interviewed who are navigating these questions really do want a space where they can think through and process how to take their faith seriously, how to take their sexual or gender identity seriously, and then how to take how to relate the two seriously. And um, that's that's a gift you can give people in ministry. I mentioned I would also make a distinction between macro level and micro level considerations in this conversation. So macro level is more policies and procedures at a place like the K through 12. So this goes back to your lenses. And I tried to do this in a little book uh, or a book, no, it's not that little, but a book on understanding transgender identities. So Baker Publishing does these all the time, like four views. And so I was asked to write one of the views and it's kind of a fun book. We interact with each other's views. And uh, anyway, I took three different policies from three different Christian institutions. These were not K through 12. I don't know too many K through 12s that are publishing their policies, especially around gender. Most publish a policy, a policy on sexuality and sexual behavior, um, but not so much on gender quite yet. But uh, that, that's probably coming. But I took these three and they were at different, um, more at colleges than at K through 12s because they were published. And I just compared the three based on whether they represented different lenses well. And so I was working with the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities, and I identified three different schools that kind of represented this. The first was uh, that concern to be corrected. So for them, their policy at their institution was there's gonna be no cross or other gender identity or expression. Stated positively, identity and expression will correspond with your birth sex or those biological markers. 
And that has implications then for programming and education, support services. You know, you'll use the bathroom and locker room that corresponds with your birth sex. So it's kind of that perspective. And then it's seen as a reflection of creational intent and that the policy moves people towards reliance on God for managing dysphoria, for example, in ways that reflect creational intent as a preferred vision for flourishing. So that was kind of one, one school kind of went that direction. Another captured what I would call more that disability that lends to an experience to be empathized with. And so they acknowledged there would be for some people cross or other gender identity and expression. They cited creation, but they also cited the story of the fall in Genesis three stated positively identity and expression will be discussed and supported on a case-by-case basis. So let us know, we'll work with you on a case-by-case basis, and then that'll have implication for your housing, bathroom access, locker room, health insurance, things like that. So they would say the fall has touched all of creation, including sexuality and gender. So the policies move people towards managing their gender dysphoria and growing in their faith through more enduring hardship as the preferred vision for flourishing distinguishing sort of how I am, I have this experience of a discordant gender identity from who I am as like a transgender person that I would celebrate in the third lens. And that third lens, there was one school that's as close to a diversity as as I could find in the CCCU. These are all Christian colleges and universities, but they would say that cross or other gender identity and expression is present Um, stated positively, identity expression will be discussed and supported. They had a transgender sort of person of contact, point of contact. Um, It had implications for programming. You yourself as a transgender student could be a resource for educating your peers. Um, We can help you with contact with faculty about proper naming pronouns. Um, Gender diverse experiences are viewed more positively as either the creativity of God or at least celebrating personhood as it is experienced and expressed. So policies support transitioning as reflecting who I am rather than how I am as the preferred vision for flourishing. So I'm gonna distinguish that from the micro level. So the micro level is really um, your day-to-day interactions with students. And what you wanna communicate here is more, I'm listening, I believe you, you are valued, you have our support. And so this means being intentional. And the background here is intentional as well. I was showing the green flourishing grass on the right and the dry, um, not so healthy grass on the left. The climate is set by us being intentional and creating an environment, co-creating environment with our other students uh, so that people can do better here than they would do otherwise. So these three areas that we recommend is to be intentionally relational, intentionally formational, and intentionally secure. So intentionally relational, people navigating this space in a K through 12, their experience is interpersonally mediated, we believe, meaning they'll have either positive or negative experiences in their school based on relationships that they form. So we want to be intentionally relational becoming a source of hospitality and encouraging encouragement, shaping the climate in ways with your immediate presence that you see people, you believe people, you care for people, they're valued in your presence. Intentionally formational is 
fostering a discipling atmosphere. People are discipled in the depth and sincerity of their faith, not having to sort of get this topic right before you take their faith seriously and help them take their faith seriously. And so that they're held in ways um, where they can learn how to hold complex aspects of their own developing sexual identity or gender identity and their faith. They have to sort of hold and manage these aspects of themselves, not foreclose prematurely on one or compartmentalize them and keep them completely separate or reject one. They, we want to help them hold these complex things. And you do that by um, helping them grow in their faith, being able to bring these things to God, uh, to rely on God as a source of guidance and support, to trust God as a good and loving father whose plan for their sexuality or gender is better than plans they might hear around them. And then lastly, to be intentionally secure. Uh, this is where you co-create a predictable and trustworthy atmosphere that reduces anxieties and fear-based ways of being with one another, including fear-based ways of reacting or responding to each other as a staff member, uh, for example, and relating to a student. Um, that can be another source of encouragement. And the way to get at this is to begin to ask yourself, where are the fears within our community? What are the fears that drive a lot of the ways that we relate, react to this topic or to the people who represent this topic? And how could we then reduce fear-based ways of relating to one another and to students who represent these topics to us? So those are some of the recommendations that I would make. And I know you have questions, so I wanna make sure that we spend some time on those. So let me stop there and open it up to questions and we can sort of apply these concepts uh, to the questions that you've, you have in front of you. I know I went through that in a way that you might felt like there's a bit of a, a lot in a small amount of time. So feel free to ask for clarifying questions about any of that material as well. Thanks, Dr. Yarhouse. Um, so our staff put together a couple questions. So I'll maybe ask one and then I'll open it up to questions from the floor here. And um, our friends join online as well. You're welcome to jump in. <clears throat> so first one, um, and I think this comes from one of the middle school groups. Um, as a Christian institution, would you affirm that we build our foundation on identity in Christ first and foremost before we enter into questions of whether we are a boy or girl or going through gender dysphoria? Um, that's probably, that's the first part of the question. That's probably manageable to tackle there. Um, let me know if you need me to repeat that for you. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, in some ways, the answer is yes. I mean, you, you want all of your students to form an identity in Christ, absolutely. And you want to communicate the message that when you have questions about your gender identity or you experience your gender identity differently than most people do or most other kids do at our school, that doesn't preclude you from a relationship with Christ. Like God still wants a relationship with you. That's why I talk about one of our being intentional as being intentionally formational discipling people in growing in their identity in Christ. But I wouldn't want that to supersede, like I wouldn't want that to, to mask the reality that some of your students are navigating sexual and gender identity as like the, the example was before um, 
figuring out boy or girl gender identity. The problem with framing it quite that way, the, the, the reason I might say, in addition to yes, I might say, well, hang on, is that um, the gender identity questions may already be present. And so they could be present as young. I mean, a boy or a girl knows they're a boy or a girl between ages two and four. And so when you have early onset experiences of a kind of discordant gender identity, you know, they're, they're coming into that well before they've really formulated what identity in Christ means, right? So, um, so it becomes a little more complicated than maybe a little more nuanced than maybe how the question was, uh, was framed. So in some ways it's yes, identity in Christ, deepen people's walk with Christ, absolutely. In some ways it's, well, uh, some of those questions may already be present and um, we don't want to react to that uh, discordant experience of gender identity in a way that communicates, if you have this experience, um, you couldn't possibly also have an identity in Christ. I think that would be a mistake. Yeah, so the second part of that here is how do you navigate the implications of being too focused on um, male and femaleness um, uh, and on the contrary, too overly sensitive? How do you navigate those two dynamics? Uh, like teaching maleness and femaleness, but not overdoing it? Is that the question? Yeah, um, and on the contrary, being overly sensitive to not engage with what that means in terms of questions of identity. Well, I would definitely teach norms around sexuality and gender. Like as a Christian institution, here's what we believe about creation and God's intent. But we know as soon as we teach that, that we also need to teach that that's not everybody's experience. And that's not to say that it's their fault. Um, you know, the the... You know, in John 9, the man born blind, the disciples go up to Jesus, the disciples go up to Jesus and say, who sinned? Did this man sin or did his parents sin that he's born blind? And, you know, you can teach the norm of eyesight and vision, but you can recognize that some people, they, they don't have that experience. And you don't have to find a blame for that. You don't have to blame the parents. You don't have to blame the person. You don't have to say it's willful disobedience. You can say, yeah, sometimes things aren't the way they were meant to be, but how do we see God manifest in these circumstances? How can people grow in Christ-likeness and lean into a relationship with God in that? So I would teach both norms, and obviously there are going to be experiences that are not those norms. We have that in every other aspect of human experience. Why would we not have that around sexual orientation or gender identity. So you can do that and be very generous and gracious and charitable to people who have different experiences of gender identity. None of that has to open up gender as something you just choose one day or it's completely socially constructed or it's up for grabs for everybody. I don't think that's the case at all. So you don't have to teach gender ideology, but you can recognize that there are gonna be variations in experiences of sexual and gender identity at the same time. Thank you. Yeah, that's super helpful. Um, it, in terms of uh, next questions, we, I can open up to the floor, um, questions online, and then I've got a couple more as well too. So great. I'm at a point in the chat here. Yeah, I don't know if you're gonna be able to see and hear me. Maybe I'll do this here. So it sounds um, from our head of school, 
It sounds from your earlier comments that students who identify as LGBTQ are most likely going to feel the need to be connected within a Christian community before they're likely to define their identity in Christian ways. This is probably true for all of us belonging to the tribe comes before belief. Um, so yeah, really interesting question about what it means to be community and talking about these norms that exist even um, that, that predate um, conversations about content and conversations of what it means to be a part of our community. So I think it's a really helpful comment. Um, any response to the question in the chat there, Dr. Yarhouse? Yeah, I mean, so, so yeah, that's that being intentionally relational piece. Because um, ultimately, what you're asking a student to do is you're asking a student to trust that there's a, there is a good and loving father whose plan for their sexuality is better than other plans that they'll be exposed to through all kinds of sources, through culture and society and media. And so how does anybody trust God with any aspect of their life, whether it's your finances, your retirement, if you're single, your singleness, if you're married, your marriage, if you're a parent, your children, all of us eventually trust God or are considering it. How do I trust God as a good and loving father with this fill in the blank? So you're just asking students to do the same thing in these areas of sexuality and gender. And people don't trust God like that if they don't trust the people who bear his name. And the people who bear his name have a particularly important responsibility to relate to others in a Christ-like manner that make it plausible that there's a father in heaven who they could trust. So all of this is interpersonally mediated. That's why it's so important to stress being intentional about that. Thank you. Um, yeah, questions from the floor or online? Yep. Yeah, it'd be good if you could see the camera. So here's my question. If uh, I present this topic in a high school um, ethics conversation uh, and open up the floor for discussion or provoke a conversation around gender identity, um, there is no conversation. No one wants to talk about it. Um, and, and students are genuinely afraid to offend or say something wrong uh, because of who's in the room or who's not in the room. So here's my question is, do you see this um, ever entering into the public sphere of conversation? Or is it going to remain more of a private conversation for people who are um, deeply invested or um, are experiencing um, sexual identity different than other people? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I think so. So uh, what I'm hearing is that um, sometimes when the topic comes up, like in a class or in a public way, it it doesn't get a lot of traction because uh, people have a lot of fears about offending people who represent this topic in an embodied way right, in their own life. Um, so if I understand that right, I, I find the same thing where I teach. Um, particularly more students who come out of a more conservative or more conventionally religious background, what I might call orthodox understanding of these issues, they don't have a model 
they've never seen models for how to talk about it in ways that is um, gracious and kind towards the people who represent the topic. At least in my setting, a lot of the modeling around the conversation is in culture war postures, to kind of antagonizing one another. And so there's a great concern about how to even talk about it. So like when I talked about the language of convicted civility or convicted civility seasoned with compassion, or even how I'm trying to talk about it today to do this whole training in a tone that could model here, here are some ways that I do it. Here are some, you know, borrow this language or consider this posture. Um, so I do some basic things in those moments. I let people ask questions anonymously, ask questions outside of that class or outside of that venue. I collect questions. I might, instead of putting people on the spot or having people have to come up with questions in the moment, I might say, here are six or eight of the most frequently asked questions that come up in these conversations. And I give people permission to have the question, even if they've not asked the question, if that makes sense. And then I'll go over, you know, this is an understandable question. You know, I'll kind of phrase it in a way that's charitable to the kinds of students in the room who might be asking that question. I'll name why it's difficult, that we don't want to step on each other's toes. We don't want to say things that might be perceived as hurtful to them. Like I kind of like that's an, I normalize all of that um, and then try to move the conversation just a little bit further and then model how to engage it um, when students haven't seen those models from Christian leaders. Thank, yeah, thank you. That really is super helpful in terms of navigating that dialogue. And one of the questions in the chat um, from our head of schools um, involves that kind of dynamic of looking at ethics, looking at beliefs that we hold, and then also holding them together um, in terms of our experiences and the, the experiences that our students have and the, and the people in our community. So I think that um, that integrity and that interpersonal piece is um, really important in terms of what we do as we facilitate learning and bringing it back to what it means to be a community. Um, I, yeah, I love that idea of, of compassion that you brought up earlier. Um, and I think that's super helpful. So um, one of the questions that came up um, from uh, our staff here, you know, I'll read it for you here. Um, how do we speak to people in our community that have one of the lenses of integrity, disability, or diversity and specifically, how do we use language to describe or identify what kids are going through, but yet know that the language comes with other meaning or other preconceived or, or possible um, other conditions like overexposure? So how do we speak to people in our community with those different lenses? How do we engage this conversation? And I'll, I'll tell you a little bit of our context. We probably are representative of each of those three different um, lenses in a significant way. Yeah. So the last part of that question, I'm not sure what the what what that meant. Um, so I might need a little clarification on that. Um, but in terms of the lenses, I would say that most people want to declare their lens rather than listen to another person's lens. So you know, you have people from the integrity lens shouting integrity, 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 and you have people in the diversity lens shouting celebrate, 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 but very few want to hear how did, how did it, how was it for you that the integrity lens came to capture how you understand these experiences? 
and let that person really unpack how it came alive for them and why it resonates so much for them. Just as I would the diversity lens or the disability lens, you'll have fewer of that middle one, but how did that person come to, to know that lens or to, to find that that lens captured something that really said to them, this, this is it, this is how I see this and this is why. I think being able to see people and why they came to that place has helped me identify like superordinate goals, speak to their concerns, see if we can find something there, explore things that might be deficits in my blind spots in my own understanding of my integrated lens. So that's been really helpful to me. It, it's a long, it's a long process though. It's not, how, you know, how do I do this quick? It's not that it's, I'm going to be listening a lot more than talking and, um, Sometimes naming the lenses, like I have an article that came out in Christianity Today in uh, 2015, where I explain those lenses to a lay reader audience. And just being able to, I send that to families who come to me for consultation so that before they come into my office, each of the family members can sort of identify which lens resonates with them. And then we can have a better conversation with each other. It doesn't make all the differences go away because the lenses don't agree with each other but you're having a better conversation if you feel validated in having landed at the lens you're in. And then a little bit challenged if I've said, I wonder if we could think about integrating the best of these lenses. What are the strengths of each lens? I think that has led to some good conversations that you might have even among your staff where maybe you have representatives of each of those lenses, but how would people in the room craft an integrated lens, what, what would the relative weight they would give? What would that look like for them? Might be an exercise that would kind of move you to a better conversation than just, okay, well, we have eight here and three here and two over here. I mean, it might be something like a, that's a great start. That's a great beginning. Listening to how people got there could be very valuable. And then uh, what are the tensions in teaching in a setting where the policies probably represent those different lenses to some degree. Uh, what's that like to, to teach alongside each other in a setting where the macro level represents lenses, but the micro level is in maybe different places? That could be a good conversation. Those are some things that I might do um, as kind of next steps. And I don't know if I answered all the questions, just so I wasn't quite sure about the end of it. So if there's any clarification needed, uh, just let me know and I'm happy to talk more about it. Uh, I'm Berkeley. I'm the principal of middle school. The question is uh, on the description of micro level that you talked to us about. Um, I understand like for us, we work with 11 to 14 year olds on a daily basis. So being intentionally relational, intentionally formational, we, we get that and we get that well. But I wonder if you could elaborate on the part about being intentionally secure. Yeah, so security is... Um... You know, it comes more out of attachment theory and just creating um, space in the classroom that feels emotionally and spiritually safe to ask questions. And maybe it goes back to that earlier question that came up about the topic comes up and nobody wants to talk about it because they don't want to hurt each other's feelings. And so I find as me, just myself as an instructor, that I take I take responsibility in my class how am I creating an emotionally and spiritually safe classroom learning environment for people to ask questions and talk about this? So a lot of it's modeling, a lot of it's naming the topic, 
um, using language and just acknowledging even the language I use might not be the language that you're accustomed to thinking about this in. Like I used even throughout today, the, you know, this hour, I talked about sexual identity, gender identity, same sex sexuality, being gay, you know. So what I might do is step back and say to a class, you know, where people use land on language can often set the tone for what feels safe. So there's different terms that people use. Here are those different terms. And I'd like for our class to be a place where you could use different language and people could understand why that language is a good starting point for you. And, you know, things like as basic as that help create um, some of that security, some of that safety. Um, I had a student come out to me in class uh, about three weeks ago, and I think she was out to others, but she wasn't out to me and she wasn't out to everybody, but she came out, she came out in the middle of a question she was asking me. And so, you know, it was a real thing. So I said, I, I just want to thank you for sharing that part of your experience with me. I'm saying this in front of, you know, 25 other people. And um, when a student is on campus and saying, this is part of my experience. Now I, I distanced myself a little bit from her to just talk about people like her for a second. And I said, it's really been important for me to communicate to students that I'm glad they're here, that there's no other place I'd rather they be than at our school, that I think they bring remarkable gifts to our campus. You know, I said these things and you could tell like she was moved because I didn't want to too, I didn't want to intensify it too much by saying all of that directly to her about her. But saying thank you to her for saying this, sharing this with me, and then pivoting a little bit off that, off that angle into, I'm so glad when I hear a student share with me, this is their experience. I'm so glad they're here at our school. And I think they bring gifts to our school, like things like that. I th and then she whispered to me, thank you. And as I was kind of talking, um, so I think those things create security. Um, if I'm not sure what I would ask other teachers in my institution is where are the fears? Like if I talk about this, am I afraid that people will say things in the classroom that will be hurtful? That's one fear. If we talk about this, am I afraid that other stakeholders, parents, alumni, other people in the community will hear that we're talking about it and be reactive to that? Like what are, what are the fears that create fear-based ways of instruction that make it harder for me to create security in the classroom. That, those are the things that I would, I would sort of walk through those steps to identify fears and then think together as a team, how do we reduce fear-based ways of relating to each other? That creates security, emotionally secure and spiritually secure atmosphere in the classroom or in the larger institution. So that I can't always do that. Like at my school, I can't do that for the campus. I can do that for the lab that I run. I can do that for the classes I teach in. And then I can try to influence climate outside of that, but I can't really own that for other spaces on a campus this size. Thanks, Dr. Yarhouse. Um, we've got one more question here. Okay. Um, yeah, so it goes, um, whether, is there a need within Christian organizations to define their posture towards sexual orientation and gender identity and policy, or would we be better positioned to address these issues without policy 
and live somewhere in this tension of nuances that seem to exist? Yeah, well, that's a great question. So the policy part is so tricky because policy is always, almost always experienced as power-based. It's, it's black and white, it's written down, it's impersonal, and it's sort of, um, it's sort of on high given to people, like this is our policy. So, and I think that's true when you teach as well. Anytime you're in that, in that role of being in charge, like teaching is, can often be power-based. And that's where you have to be intentional about softening. I always include quotes and stories of people who represent this topic to soften and make emotional connections. That also helps with security. I forgot to say that. But th at the macro level, I do think it's important to develop policy. This is what we believe. This is kind of who we are. Um, so that people know what to expect. I'm, I'm sort of for that. Now, a lot of Christian institutions are revisiting policies they wrote 30 years ago because they're impressed by how poorly worded they were, and they aren't sure that they want to say what they're saying in the way that they did say it. They want to say it differently, and I commend them for going back to those policies and saying it's not the theology we want to revisit. It's the way we're talking about people or the people who represent this topic. I mean, for some, it's the theology too. But um, so I think that's been helpful for a lot of institutions to create a frame. Um, but then, so if you don't have a frame, which is your policy, this is what we believe, then I think you end up taking a, a, what becomes a frame and it moves around to match the circumstances that you're facing week to week at school. If you're clear about your frame, this is what we believe, which is the macro level, then you're free to adopt different postures within that frame. So lack of frame, I think, has actually been unhelpful to other institutions. Having a frame, as long as you write your frame in a way that allows for a more nimble response to, you know, the question was about postures, you don't want to have a rigid posture that limits the ways that you can relate to people. If your posture is, these issues are strictly a set of bad decisions, and if people could make good decisions, they would get out of this quagmire. Well, that's a very fixed posture that's gonna limit the ways that you relate to students. I would want a very flexible posture within a clear frame that allows you to be nimble in responding to the different needs of students and staff alike. Great. Um, yeah, just a, a really big thank you, Dr. Yarhouse. Um, we always try to ask as our, our last question, um, how do we look more closely to Jesus and who he is? And how do we live a life of wisdom? And you've already done that really well for us here. So uh, we are super grateful. A big thank you to you. And um, yeah, we uh, wish you all the best with your work. And um, yeah, thank you for sharing with us and encouraging us and challenging us. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you so much for this time together. Yeah. Take care. Um, okay, so, yeah. take care. So staff here, yeah, we invite you to respond, to um, bring up more questions, to engage in the learning.
Hey, Kevin. 